You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today we're going to revisit a story that I originally wrote back in the late 1990s on the Citicorp Tower, and that will be followed by an interview with my first guest. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And just like today's main story, today's question of the day is also related to the Citicorp Tower. You see, when it opened in 1977, the building ranked as the seventh tallest in the world, but it no longer is. So my question is, where does it rank among the tallest buildings in the world today? And since it would be nearly impossible to get the correct answer, just pick the closest answer from the following choices. Is it around the 50th, the 75th, the 100th, the 125th, or the 150th tallest building in the world? Again, is the Citicorp Tower around the 50th, 75th, 100th, 125th, or 150th tallest building in the world? As always, I'll let you think about this for a bit, and I'll tell you the answer at the end of this podcast. So let's move on to today's story on the Citicorp Tower, which I had originally written for my website in the late 1990s, and then it later appeared in my first book, Einstein's Refrigerator. Now, rarely do I ever go back and revisit a story, but right before this past Christmas holiday, I received an email from someone who had played a significant part in the story. He agreed to be interviewed, which I'll play for you in a bit. But first, let me give you a summary of the story for those of you who may not be familiar with it. The building that's the main topic of today's story is known to most people as the Citicorp Center. Although since Citicorp no longer owns it, its official name is really 601 Lexington Avenue. When it opened back in 1977, this 59-story structure was considered to be an engineering marvel. And that's because the tower had a very unusual feature to it, and that resulted from the fact that Citicorp was unable to purchase all of the property that was needed to construct their new world headquarters. You see, there was an old dilapidated church, that St. Peter's Lutheran Church, that was located at the northwestern corner of the block that was to be occupied by the new tower. The church refused to sell the land, but they did allow Citicorp to purchase the air above the church. In exchange, Citicorp would build St. Peter's a brand new, freestanding church. It couldn't touch the tower in any way. As bizarre as this deal may sound, the building's designers had a simple solution to occupying the air over the church. 
they would simply cut out one of the corners of the building for the first nine stories. From the 10th story to the very top, the building would simply cantilever out 72 feet or 22 meters over the church. And this is really going to sound crazy, but somewhere during the design period, someone came up with the brilliant idea to cut out all four corners of the tower. Now, common sense tells us that the supports for all buildings should be at the corners, but the Citicorp Tower would defy logic. Its supports would be at the center of each side of the building. I like to think of it as a tall square building that sits on a giant nine-story plus sign. Coming up with an unusual design is the easy part, but getting it to actually work becomes the task of the engineer. And the man hired to figure this all out was one of the best structural engineers of the day, a man named Bill LeMessure. And his solution was ingenious. He designed a series of multi-story steel chevrons that would transfer the incredible weight of the perimeter of the building to those central supports. LeMessure wanted these chevrons to be on the outside of the building, but the architects insisted that they be placed on the interior. And that's a fact that would later be a blessing in disguise. The tower was designed to meet all the building code requirements of the day, and it performed extremely well when the models were subjected to wind tunnel tests. And everything was great until about a year after the building opened. That's when the measure received a call from a New Jersey college student who was writing a research paper on the Citicorp Tower. Near the end of their discussion, the student mentioned that his professor thought that the columns were placed incorrectly. You know, they needed to be at the corners of the building. So LeMessure explains to the student the rationale as to why they've been placed in the center, and their conversation eventually ended. Unfortunately, the name of the student was never recorded, but his one phone call set into motion an amazing sequence of events that were somehow kept secret from the public for nearly two decades. You see, when LeMessure hung up the phone, he started to think more about his discussion with the student and something else that he had learned about the building just a few weeks prior. You see, while designing a new tower in Pittsburgh, LeMessure learned that during the construction of the Citicorp Tower, its builder, which was Bethlehem Steel, had opted to switch from the welded joints that LeMessure had specified to bolted joints to save money. And when LeMessure first heard of the change, he didn't give it a second thought. But somehow, that phone call got him thinking and he did some number crunching. And his calculations were alarming. Substituting in the bolts for the specified welds greatly increased the chance of the building blowing over when it was subjected to quartering winds. Those are the winds that come in at a 45 degree angle to the face of the building and therefore it hits two sides at the same time. Get this, it was determined that if a 70 mile per hour or 113 kilometer per hour wind blew on the building for five minutes straight, the building had a 50% chance of falling over. Now that wind speed typically occurs every 16 years or so in New York City, and that would be during hurricane season. Keep in mind that this is pre-9-11, so the thought of a modern skyscraper collapsing was just unheard of. But clearly something needed to be done, and since the 1978 hurricane season was just about to begin, it needed to be done immediately. For the sake of brevity, I'll skip a lot of the details here. You know, you'll hear many of them during the interview, and I'll get right to how they solve this problem. 
Each night, workers would enter the building after everyone left. They'd rip the sheetrock off that surrounded those unique steel beams that made up the chevrons. Then they would weld a 2-inch or 5-centimeter thick H-shaped plate on for strength, seal the wall back up, and finally clean it all up before the workers entered the building the next morning. All of the repair work on the building was secretly finished within a short period after that, and the story of its fatal flaw went untold until Joe Morgenstern's 1995 article that was titled A 59-Story Crisis, which was published in The New Yorker. And to think that it all started with a phone call from one student. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Which leads me to my first guest on the show, who unknowingly played a big part in the story. I asked him to introduce himself, so let's take a listen. My name is Lee DeCarolis. I am an architect, and I uh, live in New Jersey. I went to the uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, and um, I found out that uh, I was the person involved in this uh, strange um, occurrence through reading Steve's book, um, Einstein's Refrigerator. So you had no clue about this till you found my book? None at all. I find that kind of surprising. I mean, not that the story is well known, but my book, I mean, maybe it sold like, you know, 35, 40,000 copies at this point. So I'm kind of surprised that it ended up in your hands. I can tell you a little bit about that, which was um, strange how that happened, too. I'm I'm kind of a believer sometimes in um, things happening uh, for strange reasons, perhaps for a reason, you know, kind of uh, mystically. So Uh, and maybe this is what happened here. So I'm, I'm working in Morristown at the time, and this is now about uh, maybe six years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of an engineering uh, construction company. <clears throat> I was very friendly with the secretary, Cindy, and she was very well read, and we like to talk about books here and there. Her brother's a bit of an author, too. So one day she brings me this book, um, Einstein's Refrigerator, I guess because, you know, she knew I was an architect and might be interested in some of these. Uh, scientific technological um, incidents. So, okay, I started reading it and looked at the table of contents, and I saw the Citicorp, and I'm like, boy, that, that's the building that I um, did a structural report on in architecture school. said, so, let me read about that. And so I started reading it, and that's when I discovered that I was involved in it. It was, it was, it was I mean, very Really, strange. you're the catalyst that started this whole chain of reactions. You know, I mean, if you didn't make if you didn't contact them, they may have never known that the building was in danger of falling. Maybe, you know, I, I think, I think that, I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, uh, perhaps it would have taken them longer, perhaps never. I don't know. So do you remember what you were, what were you doing in college at the time that you got involved with this, that you, you had, you were working on the Citicorp tower? Well, what happened was, um, we were all required to take a um, structural design uh, course, basic structural design. And my professor was a great guy. His name was John Zoldos. <clears throat> and uh, he asked us all to pick a uh, building that we were interested in 
that had perhaps an unusual structural design. And I'd reading um, architecture magazines and found this building, the City Court building, which was really unusual, had a very cutting edge design. And um, I thought, in addition, it was in New York City, so I could go see it in person. And I thought it was it'd make a really good uh, candidate for my report. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what started it. So I started um, getting into it and, and analyzing it. So, so here you are. You're a student, and you're you're hmm. reading about this and writing a report. When you called La Measure, did you realize there's a problem with the building, or you just concerned? You just want to find out more about it. Oh, I had no idea there was a problem with the building whatsoever. I, I take no credit for that at all. I, I was just a naive architecture student uh, just trying to do a report. The one, the one thing to my credit, I guess, is that I was a little brash, and um, I was the only one who, ever, who, who called uh, the architect or the structural engineer on the project that they were doing a report on. Uh, and it started by me calling the architect. I was so, you know... Say, uneducated about the entire architecture construction process that I thought to call the architect first. And then when I uh, got somebody there at the firm, they understood what I wanted to do and they, they gave me uh, Le Measure's number to call him and, and talk to him about the structural design. Mm -hmm. And you spoke directly to him. Yeah, uh, it was amazing. You know, when I called the architecture firm, I got, you know, some some gentleman who was, you know, I guess way down totem pole. And, um, but then when I called the measure, they put me through to, uh, build the measure. I, he actually got on the phone with me. It was like, I was, um, shocked, you know, being an architecture student, these guys are like, you know, star baseball players to a, a baseball fan. Right. So, um, he got on the phone with me and, and talked for a while and, you know, a lot of things he said, you know, I struggled to understand. But then he said he had to go into a meeting, and he asked for my phone number, and he would call me back. And so I did that, and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, he's not going to call me back. But then, you know, a while later, like half an hour later, he did. <clears throat> and um, we talked for a while longer. And I, the one unusual thing, in, and he um, he talks about this too, is that I, I did mention to him that my professor questioned the structural design of the building. It kind of annoyed him. <laughs> so I think it, that was important that he became a little annoyed about that. But he didn't seem concerned at all. I mean, he just was annoyed, you know, that he's being questioned on on basically because he designed this building to have these unusual, you know, the unusual feature that it had. Yeah, um, of course, you know, I'm. I'm I'm just a, a naive, lowly architecture student, and he's a, a world-famous uh, structural engineer that, that could do things that not many other structural engineers could do at the time. And so and anybody that would look at the building now, you, you could see the, the highly unusual placement of the columns. It is a, a scary building oh, still. Yeah. If, you, if you go there and stand under it or even look at pictures of it on, uh, online, it's a scary building. Um, so my professor was, um, concerned about it. And, you know, the, the reason is, is not just like, Hey, put the columns in the right place kind of thing. It's kind of stupid, but just that as a structural engineer or an architect, your first 
concern is life safety. You know, you want to design a beautiful building, an, an exciting building, but first and foremost, it's got to be safe. So um, when Mr. Professor Zoldo saw that, um, he became, uh, you know, concerned, thinking, hey, maybe this guy just went too far, you know, with a structural right. design. So, and and this and history is certainly filled with examples of where they've pushed design too far, and of course, it's failed. Yeah, no, it, you know, it, there are some examples here and there where uh, a bridge collapses or uh, there there are structural failures. You know, we had that structural failure in Can. I think it was Kansas City where the, a major balcony fell right. in an arena, killed killed a lot of people. So. That's actually mentioned in the uh, video. Uh, I mean, the way I learned of the story it was in the mid-90s. There was a show on A&E, and that's where I, you know, I, I saw the interview with LeMessure and, and just a discussion of, of how someone called and set this whole chain of events, you know, this whole sequence of events into place. And uh, in that video, it is mentioned about the Kansas City disaster. Yeah, um, that, that's why we have to be really um, you know, conservative about structural design. You, you know that there's a woman named Diane Hartley, and she was an undergraduate engineering student at Princeton at the time, and she claims that she's the one that contacted Citicorp. Now, uh, based on what I read online uh, in, in various interviews with her, is that although she contacted LeMessure's office, she never spoke directly to him. She only spoke to a junior engineer, and she was sent blueprints and some engineering calculations, and she's the one that claims that you know she figured out that the building couldn't withstand the quartering winds. Now... How are you sure that you're the one who actually uh, set this thing in motion and not her? Well, n number one, um, I never even suspected I had any kind of involvement in this thing until I read your book. Mm -hmm. And then then did my own research and saw how the whole thing transpired and how LeMessure himself said that it was an architecture student that he had talked to from New Jersey. And then I immediately, you know, recalled like – well. I had the conversation with him, you know, and his, I did this, you know, a report, a structural report on the building. Clearly, it was me, no question about it. And then, as you said, I, I looked into the whole um, scenario and saw on, like, Wikipedia that there was this Patricia Hartley, is it? Diane Hartley. Diane Hartley mm -hmm. from Princeton that felt that perhaps she was involved with it. I looked at that and... Um, you know, I, the, the thing is, you know, in my opinion, that number one, um, an engineering student, even a brilliant engineering student, with which Miss Hartley may well be, you can never really understand uh, the design of a building like that. Mm -hmm. uh, a building like that uh, is highly sophisticated. Um, the structural design, the details are uh, hidden. From view, uh, one even an, an engineer can only look at the building built and surmise what is underneath there. Um, you'd have to really have the drawings, uh, all the details. If for some reason want to do a detailed analysis on it, suspect something, and then indeed find something. And the amount of work that would be involved in reanalyzing the calculations is enormous. Right, and, and I'm, ass I'm assuming LeMessure had an entire staff that did this, not not just him himself. Right. There are a number of people that work on a building like this to get things right. The calculations you know, could fill a book. So, number one, n no 
human being <laughs> could really suspect that there was anything wrong with this building. I did not. You know, I had no idea there was anything wrong with the building. I, um, I just thought it was an interesting building. And I, uh, so that's why I, I think that um, yeah, her story doesn't, you know, hold water. And furthermore, um, when I, I wrote to uh, LeMessure's uh, company uh, after I found your book and just to, you know, I wanted to talk to Bill. Unfortunately, he had died. Uh, well, cut a long story short, the gentleman in charge there, uh, Eric Hines, he then contacted me and wanted to have the same discussion with me that you're having because he, there was this information about uh, the engineering student and he wanted to kind of clear it up and see you know, if he can make heads or tails of it. So I told him the same story. He seemed to agree that it was me because it well, the details came together, the architecture student from New Jersey. And the fact that I told him that mm-hmm. I didn't know anything was wrong with it, you know, instead of trying to say that, yeah, I suspected there was something wrong. Forget it, man. This building is incredibly complicated, and uh, you would have to be intimately involved with it to uh, to see that there was anything wrong with it, like LeMessure was. And um, he finally looked at it again and found the flaw. So that's my story. <laughs> um, do, uh, since you are an architect and certainly you've done building inspections and so on, is there any nightmare of a story you can tell? I mean, it's some, something that really comes to mind that's bizarre because that's basically what my podcast is. It's unusual stories that nobody's ever heard of. Um, I've had my incidents of um, you know problems in construction and nothing uh, hair-raising like this one. Uh, this, this is about the – <laughs> the really unusual, bizarre, most bizarre thing uh, that I've ever been involved with. Um, you know, things like you know, contractors just not putting in uh, re- required structural steel that I re- asked for some time, and mm-hmm. <laughs> I showed up on the site and I found it wasn't there, and um, it becomes a problem. Then you got to tell the owner, and it's hard to put things back in order once it's built. So, uh, no, but. Nothing to compare to this one. No, I don't have anything for you. Yeah, this this is. Uh, I mean, when I heard the story, uh, this is in the early days when I started. You know, I I had a website, and the web was very small in those days. I mean, you know, those. I remember when I created my first web page. I didn't even know what a web page was. There was nothing to look at at the time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was really, I really was just taking stories that had been sending my friend by email and just pasting them in. And for the lack of a better title, I called it useless information. And it just kind of you know exploded very very quickly, uh, and then the books and stuff came from that. Um, but I, I was very early into my days of writing and really had no set focus. But when I heard the story on TV, it just really like wow, how could no one know about this? And that actually leads to uh, another question I have here: is that this involved a lot of people? There were engineers, the city court management certainly knew about it, city officials knew about it, certainly all the construction workers working there at night in, in secret. I mean, do you think today that they could keep a secret like that? I mean, with the internet and everything else. Mm. I mean, what's your opinion? I think so. You know, yeah, I, I do. Um, even at at the time, the what they went through to keep this thing secret was, uh, you know, really amazing, and it required uh, the mayor of New York City, Ed Koch, at the time, uh, city agencies. There must have been. I can only guess. A thousand people, at least a thousand people who knew what was happening and everybody kept their mouth shut. And thank That's God they amazing. did. 
Yeah. Yeah. It would have been panic. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, we keep things uh, secret uh, in this country uh, when necessary <laughs> on all levels of government. I think. Of course, unless you're the White House, somehow they always have leaks there. But yeah. uh, that's another story. I understand you're in the process of writing a play on what happened. And I guess my question is why a play and not a book or an article, something, you know, that may, may get more widespread. Yeah, it's a good question. Number one, because um, a play, was, I felt, was easier to write. I'm not a writer uh, by profession, although um, in the last 10 years, you know, I've written lots of uh, reports about buildings. So that's kind of helped me to, to at least be able to, to communicate well. Mm-hmm. But my wife, uh, Joanne, she's um, – in, involved in uh, the theater heavily and um, producing plays, you know, here and there locally and acting. So I kind of thought, like, you know, this might be good fodder for a play. And if I wrote it and um, turned out reasonably well, maybe we could get it produced. And I, I thought that would be just a, a great way of going about it. Like I said, it, and I felt it was uh, it proved to be easier to write that way. I'm curious, unless I misread it, you don't mention yourself now. You gave yourself another name. Yeah, I did. Uh, artistic license. I, I, I uh, just didn't feel right about putting my name in there. Um, I didn't think my name sounded that good to begin with. <laughs> just to, uh, just to put a better sounding name, something um, mm-hmm. more um, uh, symbolic. Uh, you'd have to read the play to understand what that means. So. Uh, just thought, and also, you know why? Because I, I didn't want it to be felt to people to see the play and see my name in there and feel it was like um, trying self-aggrandizement. You know, he's trying to p- promote himself or something. So I wanted to remove that entirely from it. And it's it's not about me, you know? Mm-hmm. Why don't you celebrate the name of the play? We came up with uh, the name of the play after going through a lot of different names and <clears throat> finally called it The Serene Secret. And uh, ha- uh, besides writing the play, have you received any kind of – has anyone – any newspaper, anything picked up on this or is it just kind of you know, just among friends and family? Uh, n- nobody, n- not at all. Um, I quite don't know what to do about it. Sometimes I feel um, strange, like, you know, okay, so I was involved with this thing. I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. I was just a, in the right place at the right time, a catalyst. You know, uh, I don't want to take credit for you know uh, saving uh, the building. It was LeMessurier who did all this stuff. Right. So I quite don't know what to do about it. And um, you know, it would be nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe someone will hear this, and you never know. You never know where to lead. What what did your friends and family think when they first found out? When you found out about this and you told them, what did what did they think? They were pretty stunned. You know, some of them when I tell the story, they're like, "Is this? Are you feeling okay?" They like they look at me, kind of like, <laughs> "What? Is, have you had too much to drink or something? Are you you just like you know you just tricking us? You know, coming up with some crazy story for Thanksgiving? So it's pretty weird." And when I, I come out with it and, and tell them this story and um, then you know, look into it a little bit and, and st- most of them, they don't even know what ever happened is, is the thing. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about it that already knew the story of the city court building, which is amazing. Right. And even 
to to boot, we, we're working on this big building now that we want to build. Our contractor is a big contractor from New York City, and I was in there recently in their offices, and I just mentioned if they knew anything about the city court building having a structural problem years ago. Nobody knew anything about it, so it's uh, it, the story's not really out there in the public. I think part of that is because it was kept secret for so many years. I mean, you know, the, the, the it, when did this happen? In 1978, and it wasn't until you know the early 90s that the story started, you know, coming out. And even then, it was you know it was a show on A and E, and how many people would have seen it? Right, there, it, people aren't really uh, hope, looking to publicize it. Certainly, CityCorp isn't. There's nobody has an interest to uh, publicize the story, so. That's that's why it's quiet. So, do you have any additional information that you'd like to share with the listeners that that may not be known, uh, you know, widely? Well, um, if you look at the uh, A and E special, I guess you'll you'll see a lot of this stuff. But what was so interesting and scary about the whole thing, after Lemessurier found out about the problem and then how they had to fix it and keep things quiet, and um, then <laughs> as one of the, the next obstacle was that it was getting a little bit of publicity because the people would see lights, uh, the welding torches in the building. Somebody called the New York Times, and a New York Times reporter wanted to interview Lemessurier about it, and the, the whole thing would have been blown. And then, luckily for him and everybody else, um, the uh, the newspaper went on strike. All the newspapers in New York City went on strike the next day, and he didn't have to return the call. And so he was able to keep things quiet again and and evade that problem. And then the next and final problem was uh, when they were, I guess, about 70% done, uh, a hurricane Mm -hmm. started coming up from from the south. And um, had this hurricane come much farther – you know, they would have had to, uh, you know, notify people to evacuate. It would have been a, a panic, a disaster. The one thing that people don't realize is that, you know, I mean, having tall, t- I mean, the City Corp Tower at that time, I think, was the seventh tall- tallest building in the world, and uh, you know, everybody has you know seen over and over again the pictures of the World Trade Center collapse. Um, but this is actually was going to fall over. It was going to be like dominoes, and right. uh, it would just go building after building, topple over, just just like you said, right. So they had uh, Mayor Koch developed in concert with the Red Cross a, a extensive evacuation plan to get people out of the area for blocks and blocks. I mean, you're talk, probably you know you're talking about you know hundreds of thousands of people, mm-hmm. and um, my goodness, um, well they were able to to not you know to avoid that when uh, the hurricane went out to sea. Right. So. That was that was the last problem, and they were able to fix the building and keep it quiet for 20 years. I find that amazing. Yeah. So as you know, in every podcast, I have a question of the day, and I thought I'd ask that to you. Um, the Citicorp Tower was the seventh tallest skyscraper in the world at the time, back in 1977 when it opened. Do you know what it ranks today? And here are your choices. And you just have to get it. You don't have to have the exact number. Just tell me which number you think it's closest to. Is it the 50th tallest building in the world? Is it the 75th, 100th, 125th, or 150th? Which one is it closest to? And you know the answer to this? I do know the answer. I have Wikipedia has all the answers, wow. as you know. You know what? Um, what's your what? What was the second one? 
Uh, I gave you 50, 75, 100, 125, and 150. I'm going to say 125. That's very good. It actually ranks 133rd today. A lot of buildings. A lot of buildings are built. Yes. Um, And just out of curiosity, I I happen to write this down. It's just I was killing a few minutes before I called you. And uh, three former number one buildings, that would be the Sears Tower, the Empire State Building, and the Chrysler Building. Sears Tower is now ranked uh, number 11. That was built in 1973. The Empire State Building uh, now ranks 23rd tallest in the world. It was built in 1931. And just prior to that, the world record was held by the Chrysler Building, uh, which now ranks number 59, which was built in 1930, as I said. Well, I want to thank you uh, very much for being the first guest on my podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and uh, I wish you the best of luck uh, in your play uh, that is successful and uh, in your architecture uh, career and whatever else you're pursuing. Uh, I really do want to thank you. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed it, too. Uh, I was, it's my first interview like this, and uh, I enjoyed it uh, as well. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for being on. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Never before dream, yes, never before dream could any shampoo reveal all the natural brilliance of your hair. Never before dream could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous yet so easy to manage. When you dream your hair, you bring out all its sparkling highlights. When you dream your hair, you glamorize all its soft, thrilling texture. When you dream your hair, you remove all luster-dulling film and unsightly dandruff. And more, Dreen's rich whipped cream lather leaves your hair easier to set, easier to curl, easier to arrange. So for lovely, lustrous hair, for all types of hair, Dreen shampoo with hair conditioning action. Never before Dreen could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous, yet so easy to manage. D-R-E-N-E, Dreen shampoo. That commercial for Dream Shampoo is from the February 23rd, 1947 episode of Dream Time. That was a 30-minute variety show that ran on the NBC network at 10 p.m. on Sundays. The show was famous for its 15-minute comedy sketch, which was called The Bickersons, which is exactly what the couple did. They bickered all the time. It was the forerunner for many classic shows like The Honeymooners and All in the Family and so on. The show starred Donna Michi and Frances Langford as the Bickersons and featured uh, Danny Thomas and Gail Gordon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, the history of Dream Shampoo is a bit fuzzy. I was able to locate an advertisement for Dream Shampoo from May of 1910, but that was not the same shampoo that this commercial refers to. Procter & Gamble reformulated it in the mid-1930s. When it was reintroduced to the market in 1934, Dream was the first shampoo that did not contain soap. Instead, it used synthetic surfactants to cleanse the hair. Advertising for Dream was everywhere, on radio, in print, and eventually on TV. While hugely popular in its day, by the 1970s it was discontinued here in the United States. 
And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for to call News of the Weird Past. Our first tidbit today made the national news back on December 29th of 1940. At the time, 50-year-old Joseph Cronin, who owned a 150-acre farm in Candy, New Hampshire, was looking for a new wife. He had spent the previous three years placing advertisements in the newspapers and had received more than 5,000 replies. He found that none of the women were the girl of his dreams. As a result, he was now offering a $100 reward to anyone who introduced him to, quote, the right woman. So just what was he looking for? Most importantly, get this, she had to be able to make applesauce. He said that, quote, I like good eats and I want a woman who can cook while I run the farm. Any applicant for the position of being Mrs. Cronin was first required to complete a questionnaire that Mr. Cronin mailed. This saved the time of having to interview each candidate individually. Each questionnaire included the following questions. Are you penniless? Are you a lazy woman, poor cook, saucy? Are you lame, deaf, ailments, etc.? Are you of good disposition? Send photo, age, weight, height, state faults. He added, cigarette liquor user not wanted. And most importantly, send sample bread made by you. So this makes me wonder, he may have been looking for the perfect wife, but what kind of catch was he? My guess was not a very good one. By the way, my wife can make applesauce, and that's the main reason that I married her. Moving on. The Guinness Book of World Records claims that Barbara Zulu of Barberton, South Africa, holds the world record for giving birth to the greatest number of twins. Between 1967 and 1973, she bore three sets of girls and three mixed sets. But a story from December 25th of 1959 proves that she was not the first. On this date, it was announced that Mrs. Ernest Kittleberger of Rochester, New York, had also given birth to her sixth set of twins. The article stated that the odds of this happening were 433,626,201,009 to 1. Clearly, that's an everyday occurrence. Sadly, three sets of the Kittleberger twins died shortly after birth. The surviving pairs were Fred and Pamela, Gary and Barry, and Gerald and Daryl. And our last tidbit for today is dated February 28th of 1977, when it was reported that East Hartford, Connecticut English teacher Richard P. Brimley had been in a fight with his school since 1971. That was when his school's principal ordered Brimley to wear a tie while teaching classes. He was in clear violation of the school's teacher dress code by wearing turtleneck pullovers to school each day. His grievance was denied by the principal, superintendent, and the Board of Education, so as you'd expect, this tireless matter ended up in the courts. Six months after the story made the national news, the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that male teachers must follow the school's dress code. In other words, Mr. Brimley had to wear a tie. In 1982, the school district's teacher dress code was modified so that teachers who felt that informal clothing was more appropriate for his or her teaching assignment, they could make a special request to either the school principal or the superintendent. In general, however, the code required men to wear a jacket, tie, and dress shirt. 
Female teachers could wear a skirt, dress, slacks, blouse, or sweater, but they could no longer wear pantsuits, which had been previously allowed. I hope you enjoyed today's story on the Citicorp Tower, and I'd especially like to thank my first guest, Lita Carolus, for being on the show. If you'd like to contact him, you can email him at ldcarolusra at yahoo.com. That's L-D-E-C-A-R-O-L-I-S-R-A at yahoo.com. As always, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. Be sure to check out my Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word, useless information podcast. Of course, you can contact me through Facebook or via email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. And my website is uselessinformation.org. I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.